We're starting from six lines down by the two dots. What we're talking, we're talking about uh, when someone steals, uh, they have the obligation to pay back. <clears throat> so specifically, the Mishnah was talking about a scenario, as we discussed yesterday, where somebody swore falsely about it, and they had that special chiv. They didn't have to go all the way to Madai uh, in order to pay him back. So the Mishnah was saying that you have to go and hand it personally to the victim. So you can't give it to the victim's son or to his agent. So we try to understand what exactly does it mean you can't give it to his agent here. So the Gemara starts off with a discussion, and then we'll come back to the Mishnah. So it's also Let's say an agent was appointed in front of witnesses. So what does that mean? It means that you have a malveyer, someone who is owed money, let's call him Ruvain, and he, in front of witnesses, makes someone a shliach uh, to go get money from his lova, from, from his debtor. So he didn't, he didn't go over to the debtor and say, send the money with my guy. He didn't use those words. But the point is he appointed an agent in front of witnesses to go get his money. Now, what, what, what is the question that we're dealing with? What we want to know is that when that agent then goes and picks up the money from the borrower, is the borrower absolved of all possible liability at that point? Is it like, you know, he totally paid back because he gave back to the agent of the creditor? Or do we say no? Until it actually reaches the hands of the creditor, then uh, he didn't pay back. And the big nafkamina would be something happens to the money in route when the agent is bringing it back to the creditor. Is the borrower still liable in that scenario? On the one hand, hey, I gave it to your guy. On the other hand, it's not so clear that that is a method of paying it back directly. So here, just it's important is that it was a shliach, just the important variable is that it was also be'edim. It was done in the presence of witnesses. You could say, if it's done in the presence of witnesses, that's very legitimate. So he's legally considered exactly like the Malva at this point. He's literally an agent with shluchah shalom kamoso. So now once the borrower gives the agent the money, it says if he gave it to the creditor himself, and if anything happens to the money, when it's in transit, the borrower is no longer liable and he doesn't have to make another payment. Whereas he's not considered a real agent on this. He's saying even though he was appointed in front of witnesses, if he didn't, if he, if, if, if the creditor didn't tell the borrower to pay it in that way, then clap it collection, it's not an, it doesn't have a den of agency. The key point is the agency is that the, the borrower has to have a din to pay this person back. What makes, without informing, without telling, without instructing the borrower to pay this agent back, wh- who says that that creditor is making such a powerful shliach that it should be considered as if it was paid back by giving it to the agent? And therefore, Rafa says, if the borrower decides to give it to the agent, he's still not absolved from liability if something happens before it reaches the hands of the creditor. And the Gemara now explains what the root of the dispute is here. It's Rav Chisam, Rav says he is considered mamash like a shliach, meaning that the borrower is absolved after he gives it to the agent. That's the whole purpose. Why do you think the creditor went and got witnesses? He appointed him as an agent, not privately. He did it in front of witnesses. Why do you think he did that? To lay kuber so that the money should be in his possession for the moment his agent receives it. Meaning if he was just, you know, a mailman over here, you don't need witnesses if that's all it is, right? Obviously, let's just give an example. Everyone would agree if you send a check in the mail and you owe somebody money and the check never gets to the to the to the creditor. Everyone agrees you still owe the money. I think we'd all understand that, right? I sent it in the mail that in the mail lost it. Obviously I didn't pay you back. So if I went through the tear class of creditor of appointing an agent, I just tell my mailman, can you stop by that guy's door? I went and I did it in front of uh, Adam in doing that. The point is I want it to be a legal representation of me. I want it to be social and commoso. Try as the mailman is me when I appoint him in front of witnesses. And therefore, when the mailman picked up the check from my borrower, so then it's considered for sure like the borrower has paid me back. Whereas Rabbi says it's not considered an agent. This is all he's saying. What he's effect- effectively trying to communicate to the debtor is that this person is trustworthy. He smells smoke. If you want to rely on him and pay him, you may make that decision to do that. If you want to send the money with him, send 
extended with him. Meaning, he doesn't intend that his ki'ilu is his, in his possession just with his shliach receiving the cash. He's just sending a subtle message to the debtor that this guy is a trustworthy person. If you choose to do it at your own discretion, you choose to do it. You should know my opinion is that the person is trustworthy. But he's not going so far as saying, you know, he's mamish my agent, and by you giving the money to him, then it's as if you've paid me back. And that's the practical difference. What happens now with the money in transit? Does he still owe the money? So first we bring a kasha from a mission of Bamatia. Tanan says the mission of Shola someone is borrowing a cow, Vishilcha. Um, so there's an agreement, right? I'm borrowing someone else's cow. So now the lender is first giving it to the borrower now. Remember, a borrower, since he has all the benefit, and he doesn't owe any money in general, right? You borrow something, you get it for free. And you have all the rights of usage to it. So that's called kolan ashalo. So what does that mean? If something happens, even an onus, even a fluke accident occurs to the item, so you're liable to pay. So if you have, the, you know, you borrow a cow and lightning strikes it randomly, so the law is that you have to pay back the value of the cow. So in this case, an onus is going to occur. But the question is, was it already, had it already been accepted by the showel? What happens is that the lender is in the process of sending it to him. He gave it to the borrower, um, uh, or either through this is through the lender's son, his, his slave, or his agent, or he gave it to the son, the slave, or the agent of the borrower. Either way, it hadn't reached the borrower's hand yet. Vamesa, if it dies before reaching the borrower himself, Potter, the Shoah, the borrower is not liable to pay. What's the shot? Because until the item reached his hands, then he's not considered that he those terms have been binding, that liability has been accepted. We don't say that. Until it reaches his hands, the, the, the liability is not on him. So we examine. Because one of the cases there, one of the cases was that he gave it to the borrower's agent. So we explain, what is this case over here where he gave it to the agent? How was he appointed? If the case is the borrower did not appoint him in the presence of witnesses, so maybe it's just a private thing. And how would we know that he's really the agent? Meaning, how can we refer to him as the agent if there's no evidence to that? As Rashi seems to be saying that like it's a little bit bothersome in the language. Like, how are we calling him an agent in the sense that we have no evidence towards that? Clearly, we assume we're talking about that the borrower appointed this guy as an agent to go pick up the cow for his term of borrowing, and he made that appointment in front of witnesses. Ukutani Potter, the Mishnah still says that when the lender gives him the animal, the borrower is, is Potter for any onus that occurs in transit. What's the shot? Because even though I appoint an agent a, a, to pick it up, it doesn't mean I made him legal representation of Mishul Shalom Kamosa, I accepted the liability when it went to my agent. No, it was just my way of say, saying, I trust this person, and if you want to give it to him, give it to him, give it to him at your own risk. So therefore, it's, we see Kashul Rav Chista. It's a difficult against Rav Chista. We see even though you appoint someone Be'edim, we still don't say that it's a that it, that that it's a legal representation of you. So the Gemara explains, no, really, we're not talking about that. He made a shleich with him. He made a shleich with him. It would be a legal, a legal representation of him, and then the the lender would would uh, and then and then the borrower would be liable if an onus occurred. But rather, what are we talking about? Because the Rambam says just the Rambam said below to a different kasha. Was chira lakito with a sacher v'lakit. Hachanam is chira v'lakito. What's a sacher v'lakit? So it means you know a person who's always uh, who's always an employee by you. So someone who's you know like a a, a, a person who who does all of the borrower's chores and generally is around him as his agent. Like, it's a guy, everyone knows, yeah, 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 he, he, works, he works under so-and-so, he's just, he does all his men. I think today you would call a personal assistant. That's a sacha v'lakit. So it's not somebody, this is the point, really wasn't appointed with witnesses and that's why it doesn't become an actual legal representation. But the way we know, the reason why we're calling him an agent, even though he wasn't appointed with witnesses, as the Gemara previously was bothered, how do we know to call him an agent? The answer is, he's just, you know, that's what he is. That's his job. He's a personal assistant.
But in Akhanami, if he would be an agent appointed through witnesses, that would be stronger. That would be an actual legal representation. And then the Bauer would accept liability as soon as he got to Shalia's hands. Now the Gemara is a kasha from, uh, as a kasha from, Chisra from our Mishnah. Tanam, what did our Mishnah say again? So we're talking about a, a robber who has to go to Madai to pay back someone that he denied the theft to. He can't give the thing he stole to the son <coughs> or to the agent of the victim. Cannot give it to a shliach. So I shliach. What's the case? He's lost all If the victim didn't appoint him in front of witnesses, in what way would we assume Bechlau is an agent? And right. In other words, the same type of question. If we didn't, wasn't appointed witnesses, what makes him an agent? Like, how do we know? I loved also Clearly, the case he was appointed in front of witnesses. Yet the Mishnah is saying that if I give it to the victim's agent, it's not considered a valid way of returning it. So what do I see? Even a shliach that's appointed with witnesses is not considered a legal representative. This as the Gemara. This is where Chizda said the answer. Take was Really, we're not dealing with he was appointed in front of witnesses, but rather we're dealing with it was the victim's personal assistant, but not a person that he had designated with witnesses. But what would be the law if it was a formally appointed with Adim? Then you're telling me it would be an agent and the robber could return the item to him. It would be considered as if you gave it to the victim. So then Adetani Seifa, instead of the Seifa teaching, yesterday we saw in the Mishnah that if it's too difficult to go to Madai, that you could give it to the court, an agent of the court. So why does it say you can give it to an agent of the court? Make a sharper distinction. Why don't you just distinguish between the victim's agent himself? I meant to remember when is it true that giving it to the agent is not considered that's all for a personal assistant that just naturally is his agent but wasn't specifically appointed in front of witnesses. But if you would go through the formality of appointing him in front of witnesses, it would indeed be, be a real agent and returning the stolen article to him would be equal to returning it to the victim himself. So why is it that the Mishnah does not uh, bring out that point? Says the Gemara, Amri Lop You know why we didn't want to speak about a Shliach Because it cannot be said in an unequivocal sense. Why? Why is a Shliach Beitim always going to be a good Hashavah when a Shliach Shalasim is not always? So the Gemara explains it's a Shliach Beitim for an agent of the court. It doesn't make a difference who appoints him. Whether it's the, the Gazlan or the victim, it won't matter. It's, he's considered a good agent who can receive the payment on behalf of the victim. Meaning, even if the robber is the one who goes to the court and requests that the court appoint an agent who's going to receive the payment for the victim, the court can do that. So in other words, the, the victim out in Madai may be unaware of this. But if the Gazan has too hard of a time going to Madai and he's the one who's the catalyst for the Shliach, he's the one who goes to Basin and says, I need I need someone to accept it for me on my behalf, that can also work. So there, Psikolei, that's why we're comfortable making an absolute statement that the robber can can be by giving by giving it to a Shliach Basin. Because it doesn't matter how the Shliach Basin comes about. But in contrast, Shliach also regarding giving it to an agent that's appointed in front of witnesses, the that only works if the victim appoints that Shliach Basin. Because He's the one who can say, I'm appointing this guy to accept it for me and you give it to him is like giving it to me. Obviously, if the robber appoints someone, it's not going to be a good agent of the victim, right? The robber can't appoint an agent, a random person, even if he tries in front of witnesses. He can't say, you're the agent of the victim and if I give it to you, it's like the victim and got it. So therefore, you can't make an absolute statement. Therefore, we prefer to choose the shliach basement. But the Gemara, again, is still defending. If the nigzah were to make a shliach beidim and the gazlan gives it to that, to that agent, then it would be considered Ashava. Okay, very good. Now that we came out 
just that was part of the discussion, that the shliach basin on our Mishnah could even be made through the Goslin. Even if the Goslin's the one who goes to the court and, and, and says, I don't I can't go, please appoint a, a court agent for me, that could work. So the Gemara says that point, not everyone agrees with you. That is against this opinion. If the Shliach Basin was appointed but through the victim, the request of the victim, but not necessarily through the robber, and the robber gave it to him, or if the agent of the agent who received the payment was made through the robber, but then the victim sent his own agent who took that item from the robber's agent, then then the robber is exempt. But one thing I see that doesn't exempt the robber is if he requests the agent from the court and stam, he gives it to that agent of the court, that does not that does not absolve the robber. So that's against what we just said. The down of our Mishnah holds that in a psika way, in an absolute way, unequivocally, any shliach basin potters the robber. Even if the robber is the one who requests it from the court, that would potter him up if he gave it to him. So that's not like this Tana. This Tana holds that on some level, the nixel has to be proactive in getting that item in order that it should absolve the gaz. Okay, now the Gemara just weighs in with other Amaram and seem to hold like Rav Chista. In case where an agent is appointed in front of witnesses, it's a totally legal legal agent, right? So again, what does that mean? If the creditor appoints an agent to receive his debt from him in front of witnesses and then the borrower gives it to that agent, he is totally potter. <coughs> if an onus occurs and the money never gets to the creditor, the borrower doesn't have to pay again. You're going to ask from our Mishnah, which implies differently. Our Mishnah implied our, this question that we dealt with, that the robber cannot fulfill the obligation by giving it back to the victim's agent. The case is that he wasn't really appointed an agent in front of a different The Mishnah is talking about that the victim made the agent available to the robber. What does that mean? To Amar Leh, the victim told the agent, is, is this a I have money by so-and-so and uh, he hasn't given it back to me yet. It's Why don't you go appear in front of him and offer your services. Maybe he just can't find anyone. In other words, he sends him because he says, maybe this guy is just having a trouble getting the mail out to Madai. So you go stand in front of him and say, hey, I'm really from Madai. If you want to give it to me, you may. So he didn't appoint him a legal representation in front of Adim that he should be the Kabbalah of his debt. He just really basically gave him an idea to be a mailman. Or the case of the Mishnah could be, it was a personal assistant, as we spoke about before, but it wasn't an agent formally appointed by in front of witnesses. A formal agent appointed in front of witnesses would make him a legal representative of the creditor, in this case, the victim of the theft, and if it would be given to him, then in fact it would be considered like the creditor's payback. Continues the Gemara, a bit of a new topic, but certainly connected. on my Shmuel. Let's say, let's say someone deposits money with you, by you, right? So you are supposed to return it to them when, when the time is up. So what happens if someone comes over to you and it's not the person who deposited the item, but it's a, it's a, he says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm picking it up for that so-and-so, and here I have a sign, I have a, a symbol, like a, a seal, you know, a sign, an indication that I'm really on behalf of that guy. It, it identifies him as the agent of so-and-so. You know, sometimes you used to have that. People used to have um, personal seals back in the day. So if a guy shows up with the personal seal of the one who gave the deposit, so you could say, hey, okay, so then I'm supposed to trust and I should give it to this person. So we say, no, you actually should not. Even if there are witnesses that are signed in it. In other words, even if witnesses sign under the personal sim- signature or whatever. So we know it's absolutely not a forgery. We know it's authentic. Still, the showman and his obligation to guard the item should not rely on this. So what, what, exact, what exactly is the idea here? The idea is, 
we had a machlokas on the Ahmed Aleph if there is a concept that the agent becomes like he is actually legal representative of the creditor. Even if we go like Rav Chisa that he is, we shouldn't speak out. Even if we say he is, but that's all because he was appointed in front of witnesses. So if I had witnesses who said this agent was appointed in front of us, that would be a different story. Then maybe actually we go, go like Rav Chisda and you could give a return to him, but you don't have that here. All you have is that this guy is a, an agent of him, but you don't necessarily know that he was represent that he was appointed in front of witnesses. And that's really a caveat to what we saw in Amr Alf. When he's when he when he's appointed in front of witnesses, that's the way of giving giving over the power to him, that now if you give it to him, it's considered paying back the creditor. But just because you know that he's a totally trusted by, 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 by the creditor, in this case, that the one who gave the deposit, doesn't mean you should return it to him. In other words, you would still possibly be liable if something happened before it reached the owner of the item. The witnesses on the signing on it, so you know it's authentic, that's a good enough indication that you know that this guy really wants you to give it to him and that he's absolving you from liability if you give it to the agent. How does the system work? Meaning, what the Gemara is asking is, what, what are you supposed to do if you can't pick up the item? Imagine a loyal, you know, a scenario where a person got really sick, and the item that he deposited, he really needs. So obviously, he's got to, he's got to appoint an agent to do it. But how in the world is it going to work? How is he going to effectively communicate this point to the, uh, to the one that, that's watching it for him? Again, he can't just, right? This is the olden times where you have to, everything is harder to send communication. So the Gemara says, Once happened, Rabbi Abba had a loan against Rav Yosef Bar Chama. Amalei Rav Abba said to Rav Safra, who is going to where Rav Yosef lived, when you, when you go, when you come back, can you bring me my money? So he asked him to do, me a fa- to do him a favor and pick up his debt and bring it back to him. So he also lost him. Rav Safra went there and he asked him for the payment. Amalei Rav Abrazer, Rav, the son of Rav Yosef said, did Rav Abba write for you a receipt that you should give to my father that said, I, meaning Rav Abba, have received payment? Meaning, I'm not paying you. I shouldn't, I mean, he was talking about for his, for his father, through his father, saying, my father shouldn't pay you unless you're going to give him a receipt that says I've collected it from you at this point. Because if not, I'm just going to give it to you and you're just the agent. And you're just the agent, and if something happens to it, then uh, we're still liable. So if you would write us a receipt that says, by giving it to the agent, I have received it, okay, that would be excellent. If Rabbi Abba would say, write such a language, by giving it to my agent, I have received it, okay, then we'll feel comfortable giving it to your agent. But do you have such a receipt? So I'm really low. He says, no, I'm sorry, I don't. So Rabbi said right back to him, Zil, go back to Rabbi Abba, let him have, write up such a receipt that says, I've received payment through Rabbi Abba's collection. And then we'll feel comfortable giving it to Rav Safra. Lesaif. Then Amalei, after he thought about for more, Rav said to Rav Safra, Even if you write for you that I've received payment through Rav Safra's collection, it's still worthless. Why? Maybe by the time you come back, Rav Abba will pass away and the money will be inherited by, by his orphans. And Rav Abba's written statement that I've received the money through giving it to Rav Safra will become worthless. So meaning, let's say the real owner of the money, who again here is Rav Abba will pass away before the money is collected and then it will become under the ownership of the Yarshim it belongs to the Yarshim we owe it now to the Yarshim the fact that Rav Abba <coughs> had, had written a receipt that if it's given to his agent his Kilu he accepted it that's not going <coughs> to help when we owe it to the Yarshim for the Yarshim the Yarshim may have to give it to the Yarshim themselves so therefore right? so Rav Abba said what am I supposed to do Right? I'm just a poor agent I'm trying to help out Rav Abba collect his debt over here you're not willing to give it to me well, help me out figure out a way to do this so what they told him, Rabbi said, Zil and make Rabbi Abba give you the debt. 
Make it that you are the owner of the debt. How is he going to make it that you are the owner of the debt? And this is not easy. How are you not going to get? So how are you not going to debt? So the Gemara seems to be explaining you do it through Kenyan Agav. A Kenyan Agav means that you're, that you're acquiring a little piece of land. And Migu, that you're acquiring a piece of land, you can acquire another, uh, another item that's movable together with it. You don't have to do a special act of Kenyan on the debt. So on, you're going to be going to... Rabbi is going to make a Kenyan with you on a little piece of land. And Agav, that piece of land, he's also going to be mocked into you the debt. And now you own the debt. So now you will become our new creditor. Then you can come yourself and write that I've received the money. Now, obviously, this only works because there's good communication and trust between Rav Abba and his agent, Rav Zaf. Because what's happening is that he's giving Rav Safar his debt, right? He's being mocked with the debt. Now, obviously, the end game here, ultimately, what they want is that Rav Safar will pick up now what is currently his debt and then come back to Rav Abba and say, hey, I have a present for you. Here's some money. But that obviously only works in that such a scenario. It's also a very big chiddush here in the Gemara is that we say that Kenyan Agav can work on debt. This is not such a simple, simple, thing, simple thing at all. And the reason why it's hard to understand is because there's nothing here. What is debt? Right, I think everyone thinks about that in finance, right? What is debt? But in the Gemara, it's nothing, right? It's Milva Lotzan, and I give you money, you're meant to spend it, you owe me other money. Debt is not a transactable item that's like that. So what does it mean that you can make a Kenyan Agav with debt? So therefore, other many Rishonim changed the gears in the Gemara to be a deposit, not debt. Debt, perhaps, you cannot be Kona Agav, Agav Karka. All right, continues the Gemara, another story where this happened. Because Rav Papa of Amazic Tracer Alpha Zuzi Bech Hosei happened. Rav Papa had a loan of 12,000 Zuzin that was against someone in the town of Hosei. He gave the money to Kenyan, Kenyan Agav over to Rav Shmuel Bravo, who was going there, was going there anyway through the, the, the doorstep of his house, and now he could go retrieve the debt as his own. got came back with the money. Rav Papa was so happy that this trick had worked that he went all the way to Tavach to go and greet him. All right. Continues the Gemara Nos and Nos Akarin. So yesterday we learned that when a person swears falsely about owing money, so when he confesses to it, so he owes three things. He has to pay back the principal, he has to add a fifth, and he has to bring a carbon asham. So the, the, the dinner pursuing him, we learned specifically that it was only when you owe money for the uh, principal. So we're trying to figure out the nature of the one-fifth chomesh today. What is the idea? Is it just like a, a, a mitzvah to pay for the atonement, but it's not like an actual claim of money? Or no, the Torah said, once there's this obligation to pay the extra fifth, it makes that the victim has a claim of money, a momentistic atviyah against him for the extra fifth at all. That's an abstract way what the Gemara is going to try to figure out. Is the fifth just an extra mitzvah that you should pay him to get atonement? Or is it becoming a momentous sort of claim that the victim will have against you? So the Gemara clearly proves from the Mishnah that it's obvious that it's mamon. Why? Because the Mishnah said that for the fifth, you don't have to pursue him to madai. We see that it is a monetary obligation. Let's say, for example, let's say he dies. The Yarshim have to pay it. In other words, if it would just be a mitzvah that you're trying to get kapara for, so if the person dies, if the robber dies, why would his Yarshim have to pay it? But if it creates real monetary claim and debt, so then the Yarshim would have to pay it. So where is the Gemara being medayik this from the Mishnah? Because the Mishnah said... And he doesn't have to chase him down to Madai. So, 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 so what it sounds like <coughs> is that that's the whole contrast, meaning to say everything else is the same. You don't have to pay, you know, major costs and so on and so forth to go to Madai to get the payment to pay back. But fundamentally, it's the same as the principal. Otherwise, besides for that distinction, in the sense that you owe debt. And therefore, the first nafkamina that the Gemara is advancing is that if the robber were to pass away, his Yarshim, who inherited it, um, who inherit the debt would have to pay. How do Yarshim inherit debt? Because they inherit assets from the father. They inherit land. And whenever you inherit land, you, you inherit all the things that he owed to other people. 
So it's not nami. We learn in our mishnah. Let's say he paid the victim and, and, and he paid the victim the principal, but he didn't pay the fifth. And then when he said, "Hey, you owe me the fifth, he swore falsely about the fifth. He claimed that he paid it, and then he confesses to that. What did the mishnah say? I read most of Now he has to add another payment of the fifth plus another fifth. Again, we see it's a monetary claim because. You only have this whole Karen Chomesh Fa'ashim business on monetary claims. So clearly, if the Chomesh is generating a monetary claim, again, we see that it's a monetary obligation. And yet, a third bride, so that supports that. Someone robs from his friend, he swears falsely to him, denying it, and he later confesses. Vamez, if he dies, Yarshim Misham Karen Chomesh, then the Yarshim have to pay the Karen and the Chomesh, but the, the, the Yarshim don't have to bring the Karba. So again, we clearly see that it is a monetary thing. But now the Gemara has a problem because we know that there's a steer of Yarshim Is it true that Yarshim are liable to pay the fifth that their father owes? Or Minu, we have a contradiction to another Raisa. It says, I died on the Omer. I could still say, When does the son not pay the Chomesh for the father's robbery? Maybe you'll save his Mashalonish. It's only when neither he or his father swore falsely in denying the robbery. Maybe that's the case where his son does not pay Chomesh. But let's say he swore falsely and his father did not swear falsely. Or his father swore falsely, but he did not swear falsely. Or maybe him and his father swore falsely about it. How do we still know that his son does not pay the Chomesh that, that came from his father's theft? How do we know unequivocally a son does only pays the Karen for his father's theft, but not the Chomesh, including whether or not they were swore falsely? The Pasuk keeps on saying you return the robbed item that he robbed or that he had acquired with fraudulently. So what do I see? And where it's his son, he didn't rob, he didn't do anything wrong. So even if there was a swearing falsely, which happened wrongly, but he does not pay the Chomesh. So what do I see? I see that his son does not pay the Chomesh. So what did we just learn? What did we just learn before? That no, it's Mamon, and therefore if a father, if a father owed the Chomesh and he died, the son does pay it. Here we see that the bride was learning off from the Pasuk, Asher Gozov Asher Ashak, that the son does not pay the homage for the crimes of his father. So, in our Mishnah and the Brisa that says that his son is obligated, that's talking about where the robber confessed that he swore falsely while he was still alive. So, remember, the confession is the trigger of the obligation, not the swearing. The swearing might be the wrong, but it's the confession which triggers the obligation to pay the fifth. So when the father confessed before he passed on, so he already was liable to pay the fifth. So now the son has to honor that and pay that as well because he inherited this debt that his father had. But in the second price, he hadn't yet confessed. So since he had never became liable, so then the Arshim do not have to pay it. Okay, so we're basically saying that the second price is only talking about where there was no confession from the father. If the second price was talking about a case where he didn't confess, then the son shouldn't have to pay the principal either. The price was saying he pays the carrot, but he's potter from the chomesh. If the case is the father didn't confess, so then maybe the father didn't owe the money. Why are you paying the, why are you paying the principal either? Maybe he'll say, indeed, he doesn't pay the principal either. From the fact that we're trying to figure out why he's potter on the chomesh clearly implies that he is chayv on the carrot. So if the case is the father didn't confess, that wouldn't make any sense. So clearly the father did confess and still were potter on the carrot and now our question comes back. Oh, it says the Gemara, another question, Tanya, we have another bride, so at the end, it says in the bride, of Adan and Yomer, when is it true that the son does pay for the Karen? Again, before the bride learned out, you don't pay for the Chomesh, but how do I know that you do pay for the principle of the father's robbery? Because I would say, maybe that's only when he and his father swore falsely denied. Let's say only his father swore falsely and the son did not. Only the son 
swore falsely and the father denied. Lo huvalov, or maybe neither of them swore falsely. Just as proven that the father stole. Me nai, and how do we know that the son has to pay the principal for his father's robbery? From the fact that there is some yesh talmud, we'll say in a second what yesh talmud means, but there is proof that Lamaisa, the son, does pay the carrot. What does he mean when he says yesh talmud? Does that mean there is a there is a pasuk which indicates that way? Like yesh talmud, there's there's a way to darshan it up from the Torah that you pay the carrot even as a son. Oh yesh talmud Maybe he's just saying yesh talmud they should be paid, meaning to say it's logical that he should pay because the carrot is real money that he owes, and therefore whether or not the father swore falsely yet one way or the other, the son will owe the money. yesh talmud I mean yesh talmud that there's a way to see from the pasuk that the son is liable to pay the principal in any case. I'm saying that you could dash enough from the Pesukim. What does that mean? Because there are many words that the Torah uses. It says, right, Gazel and Oshek and Pikadon and the lost item. So it's so many different examples that the Torah is giving and we say that it comes to teach us that a Yorish is Chayef to pay the principal. So what, what, after all said, said and done, what comes out? It says Beferush, that a son has to pay for the principal of a theft that he inherits. Obviously that's true. So now, once I know that that's true, what was the first part of the Bryce talking about before? That the Chomash, he's Potter from, but he's only Potter from the Chomash. So meaning the Bryce is clearly saying he's liable to pay the principal as a son. He's Potter from paying the Chomash. So what is the case? Did the father confess or did he not confess? If the case was that there was no confession, as we tried saying before, then how do we know you're paying, you should be paid the principal? How do we know he's dull? Chad is obviously he did confess. So if he did confess, and still you are Potter from paying the fifth. So now our contradiction comes back. Before we were saying that his son does have to pay the fifth once his father confesses to it and owed the money. Here we are saying that even if the father confesses, <coughs> the son does not pay the Chomash. So the Gemara explains why Rabbi Nachman went, what did he mean when he said he didn't confess? He meant, lo hodav beno. It means the case is that the father did not confess, but the son did confess. If the father confessed during his lifetime, then obviously he became liable to the Chomesh, and then it's like the Mishnah and our first prize has said, the son would pay. We're talking about the case that the father did not confess. It's the son who admits that his father stole. So copy the Karen, of course you have to pay. You admit you owe, that your father owed the money, so you'd pay. But if you admit that your father's world falsely, you don't pay the Chomesh. It's only if the father had admitted before his lifetime what his son pays. So is that clear? Our Mishnah, which is Mavur, that Chomesh is, is Mamun, and the son would have to pay, and the first price for that, for that matter. He's talking about that the father confessed during his lifetime. Then if he dies, the son does pay the Chomesh. But if the father never confessed it, but the son confesses that his father stole, the son would pay the principal. The son would not pay the Chomesh. Says the Gavara, well, wait a second then. If, he, if, the, if the son first swore falsely, if he swore falsely, then let the son be liable to the fifth because of his own oath. Meaning, if we're saying that he confesses his father owes money, then he's hived to pay back the principal. If he first swore falsely about that point, then let that be like his own obligation that he swore falsely about and he should be, have to pay the Chomesh. Says the Gemara, Amri B'Shein Gezel Kayemas. We're dealing with a case that the robbed item is no longer here. In other words, what we're saying is the, the robber himself who stole, even if the long thing is not, here, is not here, he has to pay the value of what he stole. But the son is only liable to return the article itself 
uh, when it's when it's intact. He doesn't have an obligation to pay its value. So when the when the when the item is not here, the son's false oath about the robbery doesn't isn't isn't denying a moment to a claim, and therefore he's not liable to pay the one fifth. Says the Gemara. Then we're going in circles because the Ebi Shein Gezel Kayemus. If the case is that the the item is not intact, I feel Karen Lashami shouldn't be have to pay the principal. In other words, the principal would be the value of the stolen item. But if the stolen item is not here, he doesn't have to pay. We're saying. Says well, we're talking about a case that there's real property in the father's estate, meaning he inherited real property. And when there's real property, um, in the case where the robber left real property, they are required to pay the victim, even when the stolen item itself is no longer here. Because you inherited that property from your father, and if you admit that your father stole, then, then you will have to pay that. So now, the Gemara still says, but wait a second, even if there's real property, what difference does it make? Does that make you liable to repay the principal from the estate? A robbery is just an, like an, an oral loan, meaning there's no document. What's the law? If someone, owe, if a father owes money and he dies and he leaves Karka, could the creditor collect from the, from the Arshim? So the answer is it depends. If it's an oral document, no. If it's a Milva Bishtar, yes. So here, there's no Shtar, it was just that he stole. So it's just tantamount to a Milva Alpeh, Milva you don't collect from Yarshim. Mark explains, We're talking about that the father had already stood for judgment and he was found liable to repay the principal before he died. So once it was imposed by the order of the court, that is as the same level of a, of a chov that comes about through a document and it does trigger a lien on the property. And therefore... And therefore, it, took, it takes effect on that. So even though the gzela is not kayam, but they have an obligation to pay to pay uh, from the land. So now we're still again. How do we close the circle? If we're saying that's the case, and that's why they're paying from the principal, even though the item's not here, then they should be chayv to pay the, the chomash as well, because you're, you're, you're denying a real monetary obligation under oath. Once it's true that the son, Yarshin Karka, after a case where his father was Ahmed Badin, if he was swear falsely about paying that back, so you're swearing about falsely about a real, a real, uh, a real genuine monetary obligation that you have. So the son should be chayv to pay the chomash out his own, out his own denial. So the Gemara says, You don't pay the fifth for a denial of a lien on the land. Meaning the son doesn't have an obligation to pay the Karen, to pay back the value. He has an obligation out being the owner of the land, and the land has the lien. So you don't pay the, the whole chiv to pay Karen for swearing false and claims is only when you essentially owe it. Now when you owe it only as the holder of the lien. So therefore, the Karen you have to pay, but the Chomash you wouldn't pay. So after all is said and done, of course, if a father confessed at the time during his lifetime, of course, the son would have to pay the Chomash as well. If the father had, had, had if, if we're saying it was a case where, where the, uh, the, the, he was, he was Ahmad Badin and he left money for it, um, he hadn't swore falsely, but he, he left the money for it, and now it comes as in the form of a lien over to the kid, so they have to pay that. If the son would now swear falsely about whether or not he had paid, so he would... <coughs> only be high to pay like the Karen, but not the Chomish. And the reason is because of this big Yisoy that you don't pay Chomish on Kfir Shiba Karkos. Now the Gemara gives one last explanation. Uh, the, Gemara, the, the, the Gemara is going to explain it just to contrast it to the first explanation. Really, they inherited the actual stolen item. It's still intact. So that's why he has to ret- return the principal. Aye. So why doesn't he have to pay the Chomish for swearing falsely about it himself? What's the case? The father's wallet, where he had stored the stolen thing, was deposited by somebody else when he died. So when the, when the son inherited it, he didn't know about it. 
He just, when he swore about falsely, like, he wasn't like trying to be a bad guy. He just didn't know that his father had left it by somebody else. So Karen Misham, he still has to pay the principal. So I say, Lamai said, still here. doesn't pay the fifth. When he swore, he was swearing in truth. He didn't know that he had the possession of the stolen article. So basically what we're saying is that whenever a person actually believed that he was swearing truth truthfully, then he's not chai of the chomesh or the asham. So that's the case. So it's not really a din that the kids aren't chai of a chomesh. You have to be careful before you say that. In a scenario where they were unaware that they had inherited it, and therefore their oath ends up being an oath that they thought they were saying the truth on, that's the case when they're not paying the homage. But one thing remains absolutely the same between the first and the second approach. If the father had sworn falsely and admitted to it before he died, where he owed money, then of course, of course, the kids will pay the homage as well.